Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Rabbi Michael Siegel of On Sham at Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig talk about this week's Torah portion of Korach, The Risks and Rewards of Rebellion. If I recall, you were a rebellious sort in high school. <laughs> yeah, not just high school, even starting earlier. Um, I mean, I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s. There was a rebellion in the air. And um, my mom was kind of a school activist. So I remember like her being out in front of the school picketing when they wanted to close our school. And um, I think I, I just grew up with that feeling that like, you know, if you think something's wrong, you should speak up, you should challenge it. I And sometimes it was silly little things. I led I led a protest in elementary school because the chorus director wouldn't let us sing songs of our choice. You know, he assigned all the songs and I said that was unfair. And I started a petition drive and uh, a boycott. And, you know, So I think uh, I was uh, I was indoctrinated early into the, the spirit of the protest movement. How did the administration respond to you? Do they pay attention? Do they actually talk to you about it? Was there were your parents supportive? How'd that um, go? Yeah. Well, my parents were supportive. It was a little uncomfortable. You know, I think I, I took some heat. I, I remember feeling very nervous being called into the principal's office. But um, in the end, they, they let me do my thing. And I gave them a lot of credit for that. You know, they actually ended up <laughs> letting us sing a song or two of our choice. So I felt empowered by that. Well, I, I do want to credit the school because it seems like they handled it really well. Yeah, I think so. They didn't. They didn't kind of wag their finger at you and say that you're being disrespectful. And so your rebellion actually bore fruit. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're going to talk about a very different rebellion in the in the portion of Korach. And it really centers on what we would call the Ikar, the essence of the entire mission of the Jewish people. It's really a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion couched as a rebellion against Moses, but it's much larger than that. And it centers on a character by the name of Korach, who is the first Jewish demagogue. And Korach makes an argument to the people, and these people are angry to begin with because the portion that precedes Korach is Shlachacha, where the people have learned that they're going to be wandering in the desert for the next 38 years, and it will be their children that will enter the land. Korach is making an argument to a people who are angry already. And his argument is simply this. All Israelites are holy, and Moses isn't more holy than any of us. So why is Moses the leader? Why is it that Moses presents himself as the one who God talks to? And shouldn't God really be talking to all of us? And so the hallmark of the demagogue is to always present him or herself as the protector of the people. And this is exactly what Korach does. It's interesting to me, in hindsight, and when we look back at history, it's easy to decide who's a, de who's a demagogue and who's a revolutionary. Um, but sometimes maybe in the moment, it's harder to tell. There's a fine line in some ways, especially when you're living in that moment between the demagogue and the revolutionary. And you know, I think about American history, you know, we pride ourselves on being a country built out of revolution, and yet some revolutions are sanctified and celebrated and others are rejected, right? The, uh, the, the, the South in the civil, during the Civil War thought they were the revolutionaries. And they were also, they were also the aggrieved party. They absolutely. All, they, they, they felt that the world, the North was treating them badly. 
and that they that they had no choice but to revolt against them. We're actually watching this in Russia with um, with Putin. Putin is making the argument that Russia is in danger from Ukraine and Ukrainians are Nazis and all the rest. And they are a deep and very real threat to them. Right. So demagoguery is in the eye of the beholder. And Putin would never describe himself as a demagogue. Uh, Robert E. Lee would never describe himself as a demagogue. And maybe um, it's the winning side of history that ends up telling the story and and applying the, the definitions. Well, I think there's always a shred of truth. There has to be a shred of truth to the uh, rantings of the demagogue. So is NATO perceived as a threat to Russia? I imagine it is. Mm-hmm. So so what, what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? That becomes the larger question of demagoguery. And in the case of Korach, his followers are going to challenge Moses and the core mission. And basically, Datam and Aviram, who are also two Levitical leaders, refuse to be summoned by Moses. And they say to him that you brought us out of a land of milk and honey for this, right? So they're, they're referring to Egypt as the land of milk and honey, which is just remarkable. And what we see is that the entire essence of the mission of the Jewish people is being called into question. And there's anarchy going on. And Moses, Moses challenges Korach's people to a test of God. And it centers around their fire pans, which are kind of incense creators. They're pans, the you know, long pans, which they put incense in. So, which is a way of kind of bringing God into their midst. And what's about to happen is that Moses has created a test, but God just wants to destroy all the people. And Moses stands in the breach, even at this moment of rebellion and says, are you going to destroy all the people because of just a few? This is very reminiscent of Abraham kind of say trying to save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what God ultimately does is the Levites are standing out there, the followers of Korach with their fire pans, and the uh, earth swallows up all the followers of Korach. And then these Levites who are holding their fire pans are then incinerated for added effect. And you know, you would think that's the end of the story. The people kind of have seen God's response to this rebellion. Yeah, if that doesn't do the trick, um, yeah, I'm you know, not sure you've got a, gonna... yeah, right. You've got a much bigger set of issues on your hands, right? So, and yet, it it does not make everybody come into line, right? It's still, it's still, um, there's still doubt in people's minds. Well, there, there was a deeper issue here. I'm kind of going kind of going back to your protest for the kind of music or the the songs that were being chosen. The fact was, is there was a problem that you were identifying. Right. And w- what happened with the school is that they actually listened and they responded and they found a way to acknowledge the issues without reprimanding you. Mm-hmm. I want to suggest that Moses' leadership didn't actually do that. What Moses does is, and what God does is say, you're wrong, you're a threat and then the the ground just simply swallows you up. That's one response. But you still have a people that feel aggrieved, a people that is fearful, a people that has really kind of a future of wand, literally sitting in the desert 
until that entire generation dies off so their children can go into the land. So that issue is never actually addressed, and it's festering here. And that, I think, is a large part of the issue here is that, you know, Moses comes across as, you know, the great knight of faith, and he stands up for the people. But if you look at his abilities as a leader, I think it leaves us wanting. He hasn't really addressed the core issue for the people, which is their disappointment, their horror at their own situation, and their kind of the sense of despair that he's not addressing. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, you know, because part of the demagogue's power is his appeal to emotion. He's able to rally the, the masses by complaining about the failures of the leader, but also by tapping into the public sentiment. And Moses doesn't seem to appreciate here that he also has a duty to, like, understand the way people are feeling. That's a, a, a big gap for a leader uh, to, to lose that kind of connection, that emotional connection with the people you're leading. Right. On the one hand, Moses is willing to jump in the breach to save the people, but it's the day-to-day -day interaction with the people that he seems to be lacking, right? He is so God-centered, right? What, what his relationship with God is unique, and Moses is known as the one who spoke to God face-to-face. -face. Even though God denies Moses the opportunity on Mount Sinai, he's remembered as the one who spoke to God face-to-face. -face. No one had a more intimate relationship with God than Moses. So maybe he just doesn't understand, you know, how mere mortals actually live. You know, they live with fear. They, they, they are challenging, and they challenge. And I, it goes to something that happens at the, at the end of the story, which is we don't usually pay a lot of attention to. So what happens to these fire pans? So the Levites are gone, but the fire pans are still lying on the ground. They got to be recycled. So they got to be recycled. Exactly right. What do we do with these things? And well, they were used for a act of holiness, right? They were filled with incense in an act of the temple. So that makes them physically holy, which is this whole conceptual framework of the temple period, that they literally were physically holy. It's not, it's not like you could put them in a storage room. It's not like you could make them into um, copper pans for your kitchen. You needed to be able to make use of this for a holy person. So what do they do? They disassemble them. They pound the metal and to make sheeting. And then they put the sheeting on the altar where the sacrifices go on as a warning about rebellion. So how effective is that? So now, so the, the whole end of the story is, oh, well, you should never rebel again because here's what happens to people who rebel. I think that that's, I think that's a very narrow reading. The moral of the story here, never rebel, or is the moral of the story here, um, you know, listen to the people so that they don't turn to demagogues and be a part of a community that a leader, you know, needs to listen to. I think it's saying two things, because if you can't say that uh, that a people that has stemmed from Abraham who challenges God or Moses who challenges God, that you, you can't challenge God, that rebellion or or asking hard questions is not part of the framework of Judaism. And so you look at this and you say, oh, well, there are rebellions that are bad, that are dangerous. But asking hard questions, and there are also rebellions that are good. So what do we do? We have to find the parameters. But what are the parameters 
of a strong, positive rebellion. How, what are the parameters of dissent? Right. That, that, I think that's a very real question in our country today. What, how do we deal with it? Is it just, well, it's my way or the highway? How do we find balance? What are questions we're allowed to ask? And how do we protect the republic at the same time as we try to institute change? Do we throw the whole system out and say it's bad, which is what Dr. Manavri was saying, look, you took us out of a land of milk and honey. This whole thing is on its head. It's, it's, it's wrong from the, from the get-go. Or do we say, how do I work within this system? And the sheeting on the altar is a reminder that rebellion and asking hard questions and being critical of government is part of a healthy society, but there are limits to it as well. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's not resolved clearly because that that sheeting still stands as a symbol, of a reminder that don't go too far. It's really hard to know um, where those limits are because often the revolutionary, the rebel, has to push at it uncomfortably sometimes at, at what's accepted, and and you don't know whether you're going to end up on the right side of history or whether you're going to end up on the right side of God um, because you're you're taking chances, you're you're questioning uh, the establishment, you're questioning the rules, and and, and we want to encourage that just like uh, right. You know, my teachers did a long time ago, but within the bounds of a community, feeling like you're doing this for the for the greater good and not for you know selfish reasons or for um, immoral reasons, but sometimes it's hard to see that. Well, I, I want to go back to something you know a lot about, which is Dr. King's letters from Birmingham jail. He's castigating. He's in jail and he's being told by his supporters and his other clergy, you know, maybe you want to take a breath here. And what does he do? Right. He challenges them. and But what's he using for the, the foundation of his argument? He's using the Bible and the Constitution to try to remind these other ministers that they've lost sight of what the Bible and the Constitution are supposed to be teaching us. So he is very much operating within the parameters of the um, of the establishment to make his argument. So it's as if they're saying rebellion. Well, you know, I think we've had enough of this for now. And I think King is saying, no, we're doing exactly the right thing. And I am doing it within. And this is the spirit of this country. I think that's a very interesting, I think it's first of all, it's an interesting example, but I don't think that everybody who read the Birmingham letter was excited about it. No, clearly he was calling out religious leaders who were, um, you know, established in their communities and believed that they were doing what God told them to do. So it's not always clear. And that's the, you know, that's how we began this conversation. There's a fine line between the demagogue and the revolutionary. And some people, certainly people who were invested in segregation in the South and wanted to see change come slowly would call King the demagogue. But what King was responding to was the condition of America vis-a-vis -vis people of color. He said, I'm not going to stop because people are suffering. He continued to hear the cry of people who are living in circumstances that were clearly unfair without equity. And I think that right there you have the sheeting on the, on the altar. How do you balance it? And as you said earlier, you don't know until you look back in history. Was it too much? Was it too harsh? How do we balance it? And I think that the, the story of Korach is an archetypal story about not only demagoguery, but it's also this challenge to Moses is also a, a very powerful story about leadership, one that I think has great relevance today as well.